Chapter 24, Part 1 of 2 of The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Yatterly. The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve by Joseph A. Altshelder. Chapter 24, In Washington. A quarter of a mile from the forest, the wood ascended considerably, throwing him into relief. He felt some shivers here, as he did not know who might be watching him. Field glasses were ugly things when a man was trying to hide. He glanced at the little group that he had seen on the hill, and he noticed now that the officer with the glasses was looking at him. But Harry was a long distance away, and he had the courage and prudence of mind to keep from falling into a panic. He did not believe that they could tell the color of his uniform at that range, but if he whipped his horse into a gallop, pursuit would certainly come from somewhere. He rode slowly on, letting his figure sway negligently, and he did not look back again at the group on the hill, where the officer was watching him. He looked from side to side, fearing that horsemen in blue might appear galloping across the fields. It was a supreme test of nerve and will. More than once he felt an almost irresistible temptation to lash his horse and gallop for the wood as hard as he could. The wood seemed wonderfully deep and dark, fit to hide any fugitive. But it had acquired an extraordinary habit of moving further and further away. He had to exert his will so hard that his hand fairly trembled on his bridle rein. Yet he remained master of himself, and went on sitting in the saddle in the slouchy attitude that he had adopted when he knew himself to be observed. The wood was only three or four hundred yards away, when far to his left he saw several horsemen appear on a slope, and he was quite sure that their uniforms were blue. The distance to the wood was now so short that the temptation to gallop was powerful, but he still resisted. Pride, too, helped him, and he did not increase the pace of his horse a particle. He saw the dark and cool shadow very near now, and he thought he heard one of the new horsemen on his left shout to him. But he would not look around. Preserving appearances to the last, he rode into the forest, and its heavy shadows enveloped him. He stopped for a moment under the trees and wiped the perspiration from his forehead. He was also seized with a violent fit of trembling, but it was over in half a minute. And then, turning his horse from the path, he rode into the densest part of the forest. Harry felt an immense relief. He knew that he might be followed, but he did not consider it probable. It was more likely that he passed for some countryman riding homeward. Martial law had not yet covered all the hills with a network of iron rules, so he rode on boldly, and he noticed with satisfaction that the forest seemed to be extensive and dense. Night, heavy with clouds, was coming too, and soon he would be so well hidden that only chance would enable an enemy to find him. In a half hour he stopped and took his bearings as best he could. It seemed to be a wild bit of country. He judged that it was ground cropped too much in early times and left to grow into wilderness again. He was not likely to find anything in it save a hut or two of charcoal burners. It was a lonely region, very desolate now, with the night birds calling. The clouds grew heavier and he would have been glad of shelter, but he put down the wish, recalling to himself with a sort of fierceness that he was a soldier and must scorn such things. Moreover, it behooved him to make most of his journey in the night, and this forest, which ran almost to Washington, seemed to be provided for his approach. 
he had fixed the direction of Washington firmly in his mind, having a good idea of location. He kept his horse going at a good walk toward his destination. As his eyes, naturally strong, grew used to the forest, and his horse was sure of foot, they were able to go through the bushes without much trouble. He stopped at intervals to listen for a possible enemy, or friend, but heard nothing except the ordinary sounds of the forest. By and by a wind rose and blew all the clouds away. A shining moon and a multitude of brilliant stars sprang out. Just then Harry came to a hillock, clear of trees, with the ground dipping down beyond. He rode to the highest point of the hillock and looked toward the east into a vast open world, lighted by the moon and stars. Off there, just under the horizon, he caught a gleam of white, and he knew instinctively what it was. It was the dome of the capital in that city, which was now the capital of the north alone. It was miles away, but he saw it, and his heart thrilled. He forgot, for the moment, that by his own choice it was no longer his own. Harry sat on his horse and looked a long time at that far white glow, deep down under the horizon. There was the capital of his own country, the real capital. Somehow he could not divest himself of that idea, and he looked until the mists and vapors began to float up from the lowlands, and the white gleam was lost behind them. Then he rode on slowly and thoughtfully, trying to think of a plan that would bring rich rewards for the cause for which he was going to fight. He had discovered something already. He had seen the bayonets of a regiment marching to join the northern army, and he had no doubt that he would see others. Perhaps they would consider themselves strong enough in a day or two to attack. It was for him to learn. He was back in the forest, and now he turned his course more toward the east. By dawn, he would be well in the rear of the northern army, and he must judge then how to act. But all his calculations were upset by a very simple thing, one of nature's commonest occurrences. Rain. The heavy clouds that had gathered early in the night were gone away merely for a time. Now they came back in battalions, heavier and more numerous than ever. The shining moon and the brilliant stars were blotted out as if they had never been. A strong wind moaned, and a cold rain came pouring into his face. The blanket that he carried on his saddle, and which he now wrapped around him, could not protect him. The fierce rain drove through it, and he was soaked and shivering. The darkness, too, was so great that he could see only a few yards before him, and he let the horse take his course. Harry thought grimly that he was indeed well hidden in the forest. He was so well hidden that he was lost even to himself. In all that darkness and rain he could not retain the sense of direction, and he had no idea where he was. He rambled about for hours, now and then trying to find shelter behind massive tree trunks, and after every failure, going on in the direction in which he thought Washington lay. His shivering became so strong that he was afraid it would turn into a real chill, and he was resolved to seek a roof, if the forest should hold such a thing. It was nearly dawn when he saw dimly the outlines of a cabin standing in a tiny clearing. He believed it to be the hut of a charcoal burner, and he was resolved to take any risk for the sake of its roof. He dismounted and beat heavily upon the door with the butt of a pistol. The answer was so long in coming that he began to believe the hut was empty, which would serve his purpose best of all. But at last a voice, thick with sleep, called, "'Who's there?' "'I'm lost, and I need shelter,' Harry replied. "'Wait a minute,' returned the voice. Harry, despite the beat of the rain, heard a shuffling inside, and then through a crack in the door he saw a light spring up. He hoped the owner of the voice would hurry. 
The rain seemed to be beating harder than ever upon him, and the cold was in his bones. Then the door was thrown back suddenly, and an uncommonly sharp voice shouted, "'Drop the reins! Throw up your hands and walk in where I can see what you are!' Harry found himself looking into the muzzle of an old-fashioned, long-barreled rifle. But the hammer was cocked, and it was held by a pair of large, calloused, and steady hands, belonging to a tall, thin man with powerful shoulders and a bearded face. There was no help for it. The boy dropped the reins, raised his hands over his head, and walked into the hut, where the rain at least did not reach him. It was a rude place of a single room, with a fireplace at one end, a bed in a corner, a small pine table on which a candle burned, and clothing and dried herbs hanging from hooks on the wall. The man wore only a shirt and trousers, and he looked unkempt and wild, but he was a resolute figure. "'Stand over thar, close to the light, where I can see you,' he said. Harry moved over. The muzzle of the rifle followed him. The man could look down the sights of his rifle, and at the same time examine his visitor, which he did with thoroughness. "'Now then, Johnny Reb,' he said, "'what are you doing here this time of night, and in such weather as this, waking honest citizens out of their beds?' "'Nothing but stand before the muzzle of your rifle.' The man grinned. The answer seemed to appeal to him, and he lowered the weapon, although he did not relax his watchfulness. "'I got the drop on you, Johnny Reb. You're bound to admit that,' he said. "'You didn't catch Seth Perkins napping.' "'I admit it. But why do you call me Johnny Reb?' "'Because that's what you are. You can't tell much about the color of a man's coat after it's been through such a big rain, but I know yourn is gray. I ain't taking no part in this war. They've got to fight it best they can without me.' I'm just an innocent charcoal burner, about the most innocent that ever lived, I guess. But atween you and me, Johnny Reb, my feelings lean the way my state, old Virginia, leans, that is, to the south, which I reckon is lucky for you. Harry saw that the man had blue eyes, and he saw, too, that they were twinkling. He knew with infallible instinct that he was honest and truthful. It's true, he said. I'm a southern soldier, and I'm in your hands. I see that you trust me and I think I can trust you. Just wait till I put that hoss of yourn in the lean-to behind the cabin. He darted out of the door and returned in a minute, shaking the water from his body. That hoss feels better already, he said, and you will too, soon. Now I shut this door, then I kindle up the fire again, and then you take off your clothes and put them and yourself before the blaze. In time you and your clothes will be all dry. The man's manner was all kindness, and the poor little cabin had become a palace. He blew at the coals, threw on dry pine knots, and in a few minutes the flames roared up the chimney. Harry took off his wet clothing, hung it on two cane chairs before the fire, and then proceeded to roast himself. Warmth poured back into his body, and the cold left his bones. Despite his remonstrances, Perkins took a pot out of his cupboard and made coffee. Harry drank two cups of it, and he knew now that the danger of a chill, to be followed by fever, was gone. "'Mr. Perkins,' he said at length, "'you are an angel.' Perkins laughed. "'Maybe I air,' he said. "'But I allow I don't look like one. Guess if I went up and tried to join the real angels, Gabriel would say, "'Go back, Seth Perkins, and improve yourself for four or five thousand years before you try and keep company like ours.' But now, Johnny Reb, since you're feeling a heap better, you might tell me what you was trying to do prowling around in these woods at such time. I meant to go behind the Yankee army, see what reinforcements were coming up, find out their plans if I could, 
and report to our general. Perkins whistled softly. Say, he said, you look like a boy of sense. What are you wasting your time in little things for? Couldn't you find something bigger and a heap more dangerous that would stir you up and give you action? Harry laughed. I was set to do this task, Mr. Perkins, he said, and I mean to do it. That shows good spirit, but if I was set out to do it, I wouldn't. Do you know whar you are and what's around you, Johnny Reb? No, I don't. Well, you're right inside old the Union lines. The army's old Patterson and McDowell hem in all this forest. And I reckon maybe it was a good thing for you that the storm came up and you got past in it. Was you expecting Johnny Reb to ride right into the Yankee pickets with that Confederate uniform on? I don't know exactly what I intended to do. I meant to see in the morning. I didn't know I was so far inside their lines. You know it now, and if you were bound to do what you say you're setting out to do, then you've got to change clothes. Here, I'll take these and hide them. He snatched Harry's uniform from the chair, ran up a ladder into a little room under the eaves, and returned with some rough garments under his arm. These are my Sunday clothes, he said. You're powerful big for your years, and they'll come pretty nigh fitting you. Leastways, they'll fit well enough for such times as these. Now you wear them if you put any value on your life. Harry hesitated. He wished to go as a scout, not as a spy. Clothes could not change a man, but they could change his standing. Yet the words of Perkins were obviously true, but he would not go back. He must do his task. I'll take your clothes on one condition, Mr. Perkins, he said. You must let me pay for them. Will it make you feel better to do so? A great deal better. All right, then. Harry took from his saddlebags the purse which he had removed from his coat pocket when he undressed, and handed a ten-dollar gold piece to the charcoal burner. What is it? asked the charcoal burner. A gold eagle, ten dollars. I've heard of em, but it's the first time I ever seed. I'm bound to say I regard that shining coin with a powerful sight of respect. But if I take it, I'm making three dollars. Them clothes of mine just cost seven dollars, and I wore them four times. Count the three dollars in for shelter and gratitude, and remember, you've made your promise. Perkins took the coin, bit it, pitched it up two or three times, catching it as it fell, and then put it upon the hearth, where the blaze could gleam upon it. It's surely a shiner, he said, and being it's the first I've ever had, I reckon I'll take good care of it. Wait a minute. He picked up the coin again, ran up the ladder into the dark eaves of the house, and came back without it. Now, Johnny Reb, he said. Put on my clothes and see how you feel. Harry donned the uncouth garb, which fitted fairly well after he had rolled up the trousers a little. You'd pass for a farmer, said Perkins. I fed your hoss when I put him up, and as soon as the rain's over, you can start again, a sight safer than you was when you wore that uniform. If you come back this way again, I'll give it to you. Now you'd better take a nap. I'll call you when the rain stops. Harry felt that he had indeed fallen into the hands of a friend, and stretching himself on a pallet which the charcoal burner spread in front of the fire, he soon fell asleep. He awoke when Perkins shook his shoulder and found that it was dawn. The rain stopped, days come, and I guess you'd better be going, said the man. I've got breakfast ready for you, and I hope, boy, that you'll get through with a whole skin. I said that both sides would have to fight this war without my help, but I don't mind giving a boy a hand when he needs it. Harry did not say much, but he was deeply grateful. After breakfast, he mounted his horse, received careful directions from Perkins, and rode toward Washington. The whole forest was fresh and green after its heavy bath, and birds, rejoicing in the morning, sang in every bush. 
Harry's elation returned. Clothes impart a certain quality, and, dressed in a charcoal burner Sunday best, he began to bear himself like one. He rode in a slouchy manner, and he transferred the pistols from his belt to the large inside pockets of his new coat. As he passed in an hour from the forest into the rolling open country, he saw that Perkins had advised him wisely. Dressed in the Confederate uniform, he would certainly have had trouble before he made the first mile. He saw the camps of troops both to the right and left, and he knew that these were the flank of the Northern Army. Then from the crest of another hill he caught his second view of Washington. The gleam from the dome of the Capitol was much more vivid now, and he saw other white buildings amid the foliage. Since he had become technically a spy through the mere force of circumstances, Harry took a daring resolve. He would enter Washington itself. They were all one people, Yanks and Johnny Rebs, and no one could possibly know that he was from the Southern Army. Only one question bothered him. He did not know what to do with the horse. End of chapter 24, part 1 of 2